Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This week of This Life is brought to you by Alliant University School of Psychology, RefillWise, and Hydrolyte. Hey, this is Dr. Drew, and you are listening to This Life with Bob Foy and Dr. Drew. Here we are. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm telling you, run and get grandma, get the nanny out of the out of Nannies. the spare room. Yeah, there's a lot of elite listeners I here, see. Drew. Why was grandma? <laughs> was my grandpa? Because I, you know, I just like the familiar thing of old time radio, but you're all listening to it on your iPhone. Fantastic! Yeah, here we are. It's this life with Doctor Drew and Bob Forrest, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna take emails at the end of the show today. But right we're gonna now, take a lot of questions. You're gonna really answer questions. I stacked yeah, yeah. them up. I know there's doctor there. questions and there's addiction questions. All right, we'll get to that. But right now, welcoming Dawn uh, Dawn Nickel. Dawn is a healthcare policy. Uh, doctorate she's been in recovery herself for over 27 years wow. founder of she recovers that's right uh it's a, the largest platform in the web supporting women in recovery over 263,000 followers bob oh my god the organization embraces, embraces all types of recovery and operates under the principle that quote we are all recovering from something god knows that is true welcome dawn thank right. you dr drew hi bob nice howdy, to meet you howdy. you bet and you're are you a licensed clinical psychologist is that the phd no, I'm not actually. It's definitely in healthcare policy. It, wow. Well, good. Wow. That, that's well, that's what, what we need. Bob and I are going next week to New Jersey to give a lecture to Chris Christie and his legislatures and a whole other bunch of New Jersey. Uh, and they're trying to put some policies in place in New Jersey that <laughs> is radical. It's radical. Some of the ideas going on. Uh, we need a policy wonk yeah <laughs> that's a nice term but somebody that you know how to put policies in place that will really affect change in the opiate overdose population yeah i mean as long as you've got somebody at the table who's looking at the evidence you're going to be okay right i mean i guess well, as long that, as they're making kind of evidentiary but that's, that's, that's the problem that is the problem i yeah. have and that's why i'm so flipped out about giving this lecture because mm. most I, i've been pouring over the literature and most of it is terrible it's mm-hmm. either based on un- lies, unobserved lies unob- addicts lies all the time unobserved urine toxicologies patient reporting uh mm. windows of, of follow-up for three to six months none of that means anything it means yeah. zero now mm. Uh, and and lots of almost religious fervor around differing camps. So I'm very anxious about giving this this presentation because I I want to do what's right for people. And what I'm thinking I'm going to do is challenge them to look at addicts the way we look at any other medical disease state. I mean, why is it that we only have you know only have buprenorphine? We only have Suboxone. We have to we have to everyone has got to have two hundred patients that they give Suboxone to, or we can only have recovery, or we can only I, if I get prostate I have prostate cancer, 
I went to one urologist, then I went to another urologist that's trained in active surveillance. When the active surveillance wasn't was failing, then I went to a surgeon who all he does is the surgery. And then yeah. I go to a radiation oncologist and all he or she does radiation. And then if I get metastatic, I go to oncologist. We, we should have differing specializations of dealing with different presentations, diagnostics constructs, expectations, yeah. and treatment treatment um, deployment. Am I off base, Dawn? Not at all. Not at all. You know, we have these things called the 10 Intentions Guiding Principles of She Recovers. And one of, the, one of the ones that we promote, I think, is probably the one that the reason that our kind of philosophy and our community resonates for so many people across the world. I mean, primarily in the United States. I'm actually in Canada. Wow. But um, our largest following is from the U.S. And, you know, we say we have to be supported to find and follow individualized pathways and patchworks of recovery. I don't know if you know William White. He's a, you know he's a scholar and he's written a lot about the history of uh, treatment of addiction. He's a an ardent recovery advocate and and quite recently about last year he started talking about this idea that we have to get away from this idea that there are recovery pathways. You know whether that's assisted medication, twelve step treatment, all the things. And he says and start looking at it as patchworks. Hey Don, Don, I'm I'm looking up William White, and he comes up as Bishop of Pennsylvania from the 18th century. (laughs) That's a different. That's a different guy. Is there another one? (laughs) Look up. No, look up the William White papers. Okay, William White papers. Amazing. He's amazing. So one thing I. I I say patients lie because I'm not trying to pussyfoot around saying patient reports. Drug addicts lie or mislead or don't even know what the truth is. Bob, Th- let me just that's say, let me the just say, truth of it. Of course it is. And when patients get when doctors get offended that patients lie or insist that patients don't lie, that's literally like saying somebody with an infectious disease either isn't having a fever or somehow is a bad person because they have a fever. It's, lying is a symptom of the condition. It's a feature of the condition. And you have to anticipate it at all times. And then let's get to the other component of what's created this is the pain scale. When a patient reports oh, wow. pain scale, yeah. patient reports, there's no quantifiable evidence. Am I correct, ma'am, that... that how did the pain scale get enacted oh, in quantifiable evidence-based medicine? I couldn't tell you. It's, Not that one. It's crazy, right? I, I was reading about where it came from. I'll, I'll review that history a little okay. bit too if you want. But yeah, but it, it's it's not good. And, and what kills me is that everyone we look- don't want people to be in pain. Let's let's all be on the same page about that. No one wants people with MS and these horrible, debilitating bone diseases to be in 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 insufferable pain, but. Opening up floodgates of opioids to everybody that's 45 years old and has a backache is what's happened, and it's destroying our nation. Is is your website, Don? Don, Don, Wait, what's the the website? She Recovers, right? www.sherecovers.co is our website. Yeah, and we're just She Recovers on Facebook. Okay, and and you you have some ideas about why 12-step may not resonate for women very well, And, and I've always said... I always thought one of the reasons was that the ex- access to treatment for women carries a particularly heavy burden. Just think of the language we use to describe women, say, with alcoholism. Lush, tramp, you know, all kinds of horrible things. Guys are hard drinking, hard partying, old boys. Women get this, yeah. these negative terms. Is that, yeah. Does that bleed all the way into the recovery, the 12-step process? 
Absolutely. I think that language is a really big piece of it. And let me just say, and I, you know, this is really important to me because my own foundation, my own recovery foundation is very, very firmly in 12-step recovery. And I think that that almost gives me, people listen to me a little bit more because I'm not coming at it as a person who has no experience with it and just wants to put it down because that's kind of in vogue sometimes. Um, but what I do, what I have learned over this past several decades of being in recovery and around 12-step recovery and other modalities is that it is a lot about the language. Um, you know, at the same time that recovery was kind of becoming a little bit more popular and people were starting to hear, and even like the word recovery, I don't think was around all that much 30 years ago. But at the same time that this this kind of recovery moves into the mainstream or starts moving into the mainstream, so too does the self-help industry. And, you know, the language of self-help, I see as being quite at odds with a lot of 12-step um, language, right? I mean, self-help stuff is all about empowering yourself and embracing your perfection and, and all of these other things. And then we kind of get into a 12-step meeting and the language can be very disempowering. Well, it's, I am powerless. And although for me, I mean, I understand now that I can interpret, I can interpret all of those steps uh, in a way that they are all empowering for me. First time in the door, I didn't, I didn't think that, you know, I didn't stay for a lot of reasons mostly because I just wanted to keep doing dope. But there's when that, I did come there's, back, there's that, there's that. <laughs> but I, when I did come back and then I came back when I really got serious about recovery was when I was doing a women's studies degree. And I was just like, everything was at odds with everything I was learning. So that was difficult, but I stayed the course. And of course I'm glad that I did. But yeah, I think that the language is, is definitely one thing. The other thing in terms of women and, and kind of the, why I think 12 step doesn't work is because we're seeing women increasingly, and there is evidence of this, um, you know, there's this, there's obviously this spectrum of, of addiction, right, from, you know, abuse to, and so on, right, to hardcore dependency. And there are just so many more women who start really looking at their alcohol and drug use earlier in the game, and they want to do something about it. And in fact, they want to become abstinent, they want to abstain, they want to quit drinking their wine, you know, two bottles of wine every day, they don't want to, uh, worry about driving and drinking or drinking and driving their kids around to soccer. So they're, they're really starting to look at their drinking earlier, motivated in large part by having children. And if all there is is 12 step, which there was all that, that was all there was for a while. And they go into a 12 step meeting and they hear the language of hitting a bottom. My life was destroyed. You know, I think somebody was joking the other day with me and saying, well, you know, I know this one woman who she quit drinking because she actually was tired of spilling red wine on her white carpet. Huh. That was, I mean, whoa, you know, and I remember a woman not too long ago saying that she wanted to quit drinking because she, oh, heaven forbid, blacked out the day before. And I was like, you know, I blacked out from the first time I got really drunk. It certainly didn't stop me. I drank for another 12 years or 17 years, whatever that was. So, so I think it's just that's part of it, too, is, you know, the language and then just the story, like the 12-step story. If you go into a meeting and you're a woman and you you don't have the story, then you don't necessarily feel well, you fit there. And, um, I'll, and I'll add that it's not very popular with millennials at all. And yeah. millennials are the same same thing, Drew. They're starting to look at their drug use at 16 and 17 and 19. So yeah. – and they, they, they are not catching on – to the 12-step model at all. And they'll really, 
go to the ends of the earth to find something else. There's a big movement here of Buddhism in Los Angeles with Noah Levine. I don't know if you've heard of that. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Refuge Recovery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Refuge Recovery and Smart Recovery they, they like to a certain extent. Why? But they, Why because so? they haven't gone all the way. She oh. just gave me a yeah, clue. Yeah. You haven't – not yeah. many people went as far as I did. Yeah. And so when I – With your disease. Yes. Yeah, yeah. To the ends of the earth. So – AA was founded on people that went to the end of the line. Yeah. And the and the little quaint thing that Bill Wilson says is, well, you younger guys, but very misogynist, doesn't mention women very much in the AA book. You guys will be young men will be able to look at our what we did with our lives yeah. and say, I don't want to end up like that. Well, that's not how people think in the twenty first century. It, it does happen, but it doesn't happen. It as doesn't much happen as like. much. Yeah. So really, Noah has something. I don't know that the kids are going to become Buddhist. But it is more gentle and it's more loving, it's more supportive, it's more community-based at Refuge. You know, I'm looking at this William White papers. I I have Slaying the Dragon, but those papers are unbelievable. Why do I know about this? Yeah, Yeah, Slaying the Dragon. It's really the history of addiction in America, right? Isn't that what's on those papers? And and treatment. treatment. And treatment. Yeah, for sure. It's great. Yeah, no, I, and I, lo- I love Noah Levine. I also, what I know about, you know, again, I, I'm a researcher. So as a, crea- as a creator of this online platform over the past six years, I've kind of looked and gauged like what's working for people and, you know, what's the language that we're using and the language that we use and why does it resonate and why do people sign up, you know, in vast numbers to come to our retreats or to come to New York City and get in a room with 500 people uh, in a couple of weeks that she recovers in New York city. And I think a big part of it is that uh, there's a lot of online recovery going on. You know, people seek, I, I usually speak about women cause I'm married to a guy like he's 27, 28 years in recovery, but I don't really know much about guys in recovery. Uh, they're, they're an enigma to me. I don't understand any of it, but huh. I do get women pretty well. And uh, women are recovering online. I mean, I belong to a couple of Facebook groups that I support. I mean, I provide support in them. 500 and 600 women in each Facebook group. They're secret groups. And there are women in these groups who are literally getting clean and sober by being in a Facebook group. That's true. By supporting wow, each other. that's awesome. I wasn't sure that was possible because I, I really feel... I I, it is. I have the evidence. No, no. I'm glad to hear that it is. Trust me. Because I, I, I was always sort of the opinion that you needed intimate connection of some type. You know, sort of body to body. Not I mean physical contact, but like occupying a similar space for well here's the thing though that that's what's happening so they're making these connections online yeah and then they do these things called meetups where you know there's a bunch of them online and they're in dallas and they go oh let's meet up and they go and they meet up and like they're forming these friendships brilliant and brilliant it's like um, again she recovers in new york city is going to be like it's like reunions of all these people who have met online including people who have been following us for five years who have never met us coming and meeting so i think it is i think that face-to-face contact and connection and, and that type of community is really important, but it is starting are a lot of them, and kind are of a lot, growing from there. Would you say a lot of them are also going to one-on-one therapy with, with a counselor or a psychologist or, or MFT? Are they seeking therapy Definitely. also? 
Definitely. Yeah, a lot of that, a lot of yoga. I mean, we do, my daughter is a trauma-informed yoga for recovery expert and teacher. So she, wow. you know, she works with a lot of people doing that. Recovery coaching is a big thing, like professional recovery coaching. Well, let's, I'm let's, actually a, a, a professional recovery coach. Let's talk about that because Bob is a little skeptical of the coaching model. We don't really know it that well. Let's, let's her, let her Well, the, the traditionally here in Los Angeles where I grew up and I had a sober coach when I was a drug addict and really it's just more like that, that, roadie that's gonna hang out with you and go to meetings you yeah. know that's where the sober coaching na- name got well that's where it got its name from yeah. i think as far back as john belushi i think john belushi drew had Sheesh. sober coaches crazy right yeah the, the, yeah where, there's a distinction to be made between a sober coach or a sober companion and a professional recovery coach so, so a professional recovery coach is someone who's trained as a professional life coach they just happen to work with people in recovery yeah, but no, how much is the training? Why don't they just go to KDAC school and then be a counselor? That that always see. I just see the education of people that are in the helping field getting less and less. Right. The access yeah. to the care that you get. Most people don't even know that a marriage and family therapist is a much lower education threshold and a much lower kind of licensure than a clinical psychologist but they think of them in terms of the same and then we get this budgeted Mm -hmm. down version of treatment and and i would say 12-step absence-based treatment in america is at an all-time quality low i would i would yeah i'm i'm in it every day and i've watched it yeah you know what i mean because you just lower and lower the standards Yeah, and I, I, I see, I mean, I don't do a lot of recovery coaching because I'm busy with everything else, including my my research consultancy and She Recovers and all of the things that we're up to there kind of taken over my life. But um, I would say that what I like to do as a recovery coach is really just help help women figure out what they need to recover. So it's almost like I'm a concierge, right? Kind of just kind of figure out what's going to work for them and kind of help point them in plan. the right direction. A treatment plan. So my ideas yeah. are that everything is going to go back to the basics of what we all learned and and what worked in the 70s and 80s when this all came about. You had a proper assessment, correct? You had proper yeah. assessment. Now you have no assessment. You have the internet tell you whatever rehab pays for your pay-per-click. Right. So the, yeah. so you have an improper assessment. You have every treatment center in, in America that's for profit saying they they handle sex addiction, and gambling addiction and drug addiction and alcoholism. And they're experts at dealing with millennials and they're experts at dealing with executives and they're experts go on any website of any rehab and they all specialize in everything. Then you go to the staff and the licensure or qualification of the staff is so low do you know what I mean? That it doesn't sure. match up. Yeah. And so, yeah, but here's the thing. Here's the thing, Bob, from my perspective, if we're looking at it from a client or a patient perspective, what if you're a person who's, who is an executive, who's been, who's had an executive coach. And what if you're a person who just, you know, you're not going to go to a counselor because you really aren't sure that there's anything particularly wrong with you, even though you're about to lose your job for coming in drunk or your mm-hmm. husband just left you because you smashed the car. You have again it just goes back to this if we have all these different options you might get you might think oh you know a recovery coach sounds like something i can do you get to that recovery coach and then that person just helps you figure out what's going to work for you i can tell you that my favorite thing to do with a with a with a client is actually have them go to one of those horrible meetings that they say they're never ever going to go to and then they go and check it out and they come back and they really like it. And I go, good, because you're going to save a lot of money because you, you can go there now and you don't have to pay me. So it's just about 
kind of finding really the right fit, offering more options, right? More pathways, more patchworks. So That's have, you, have you, guys, you guys? I need to take a little break. Let's do that. Well, I got a question. We'll, I we'll ask come you. right back. Okay. With that question. Great, great. Now, one of the most amazing parts of working in treatment is seeing a number of former patients successfully move on and choose to become mental health professionals themselves. Yes, I've seen it. And the field of psychology is vast. And the need for competent practitioners has not been greater and never been greater. If you're considering this rewarding career, I suggest you look at the California School of Professional Psychology at Alliant University. I've been familiar with Alliant for some time now. I've spoken at their events. It was founded in 1969, boasts an alumni network of nearly 50,000 people worldwide. Alliant has fostered many of today's mental health pioneers, authors, and advocates. CSPP at Alliant University hosts both on-ground and online programs in business psychology, marriage and family therapy, clinical counseling. They also offer an APA-accredited doctoral program in clinical psychology that allows for specialization in child psychology, clinical forensic psychology, and integrated psychology. Faculty is industry leaders. Former faculty includes names like Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, Viktor Frankl. Come on now. Those are names everyone's heard, some of the fathers of modern psychology. For more information on the California School of Professional Psychology at Alliant, check the Alliant banner on my site or visit Alliant, A-L-L-I-A-N-T, dot E-D-U. That is Alliant.edu. Back. What's, what's okay. that question about? So I wondered if you had done any research on on what the percentage of people who find treatment is from the internet. So so to me it looks this, like uh, all re- referrals for for tr- drug and alcohol treatment and addiction they find it on the internet somehow these days. These days, uh, yeah, uh, I haven't done that research, but I you know I would I would I wouldn't be too surprised to find that out, but. That's where we find out where everything is, right? I know, but it's a little different get, than getting your transmission fixed. Huh. Do you, you know what I mean? There are some things that should not translate to being and, – and America needs to understand how the internet works. I think America is very ignorant to how the internet works. The internet works on a thing called optimization and, and pay-per-clicks, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so what pops up – what happened in the in the in the recovery industry was all the mom and pops, including ours, Doctor Drew's Treatment Center, Los Encinas Hospital, were pushed out of the market because we couldn't compete in the new space of advertising for clients. We couldn't get in the internet. We weren't going to spend fifty to seventy five thousand dollars a month to be the number one ad on Google. Cliffside, Cliffside, Cliffside Malibu will, and promises yeah. Malibu will. And yeah. huge conglomerates like CRC and, and Origins and Texas and Florida rehabs well. And it, what it did was it destroyed the fiber of treatment because we couldn't get any clients and we went out of business. And this happened mm-hmm. to a lot of great treatment centers in America. Right. You know, and the quality of care is not as good in these places that the whole motivation is profit, net profit. They're, they're driven by equity fund investment. And America needs to know this. And I think that's why you're finding this vibrant new uh, environment where women want to find alternatives to the mediocre treatment they might have received. How many of your of your people that you're dealing with, the 500, say, had been in treatment several times before they found you and found this 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 platform? Yeah, we haven't done that research yet. We're going to wait until – we're going to do a – 
uh, survey after they've attended. The survey that we had bringing them in was really much more practical around. We had we wanted to ask a list of all the things that they were recovering from. We wanted to see so that we could kind of create a program that would address. You yeah, know, but one of the first so ass- a- one of the first ASAM criteria assessment tools is you ever been hospitalized for addiction in the past? You don't okay, ask that question. Well, not when they're signing up for an event in New York City. Oh no, but I mean on your website and in your sober coaching and all that, you have a you have an assessment where you find out how many times they've tried traditional well, yeah, sure treatment. I do. Yeah, yeah, one on one. I'm sorry, I thought you were talking oh. about New York. But but I mean, all this movement that you're finding of women getting sober online, I'm so interested to, because I'm sure, I, my suspicion would be, these are women that have been in tre- treatment several times, and it didn't work, and they're trying to look for a solution. Yeah, and I would say that, I mean, I, again, I can't, uh, there's 263,000 people on our Facebook page, and it's a really engaged, interactive community, and we haven't done the research, but, uh, you know, just as I said earlier, there's, it really, there are, there are probably... I probably as many women who have been really struggling and been hospitalized and gone to treatment several times, but there is also this entire other cohort for whom early intervention is actually really effective okay. because they haven't yeah. ever gone to treatment. You they haven't have to, actually ever. A couple things. You need to direct your attention to me now because okay. I, I need your help. Okay. For one thing, I looked up William White and his whole thing and I'm, I am, I am overjoyed to see the fi- following quote from him. We need to eschew the notion of good drugs and bad drugs. How many times have you heard me say that? Yeah. That's my quote. Because this idea that some good drugs are good and some drugs are bad is, is bizarre. There's what just, year did he write that in? A couple, not that long ago. This oh, like really? 10 years ago, yeah. Oh. It, just, it was an interview we did off of Slaying the Dragon. And uh, it, it's just they're just chemicals and how humans interact with them based on their genetic potential and their trauma history and whatnot. So I am going to give this – or I'm going to give this talk in New Jersey – uh, and there is a huge buprenorphine movement there. They also how have a, huge is it? Do you? Think? I don't know. They also have a problem with uh, con- concomitant disorders, comorbid disorders, psychiatric problems. Yeah. And so, how do I weave together a story that helps people understand uh, that it, it's this Suboxone is not the answer; it's a modality of treatment. Uh, how do how do I I feel like I'm walking into the Isn't hornet's that, nest? Well, let's let's just think about psychiatric illness. Is only Depakote, Neurontin, and Seroquel the solution to schizophrenia? It's none not. of those. None it's of those not. are useful well, in well, schizophrenia. What is, the, what <laughs> but, is the schizophrenia? Yeah, I had a schizophrenic that was on. That's Depak- a bipolar. Uh, but but schizophrenia. Yeah. Well, if it's schizophrenia is a is a complex set of illnesses of of their own. What is the typical medicine? Uh. You know the antipsychotics, which Seroquel is an antipsychotic. Yeah, but it's a it, you'd use you'd use risperidol, things like that. Risperidol, risperidol, or, how, yeah. uh, not Haldol is not yeah. used, but risperidol, yeah. right? So, but it's not the only solution in a schizophrenic's life. They go to therapy. They go to group therapy. They go. They sometimes. have ongoing care. They sometimes. have a case manager. Sometimes. They have a primary care psychiatrist. Well, there, there is a, there is some new. There data. is nothing like that in addiction. You go to treatment for thirty days and then you're on your own. Yeah. And not only that, but you may not even get a treatment because you have these individual practitioners just giving you a prescription for two weeks at a time. And then, oh, go get your urine tested over here. Would you mind going to get that? I'm like, of course. I'll bring but, somebody else's. No problem. It's like, Dr. Drew. <laughs> yes. Dr. Drew. Yes, are they, so here's what I would say if I was going to talk to Chris Christie. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a very, very active recovery advocacy movement on the East Coast. 
And I would say, you know what, we, we have to talk to the people who have successfully recovered from this and find out what works. Yeah, That's but a lot of them are con artists. You, but you, you also need to know. I, 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 but I disagree. A lot of them are con artists who refuse. That's what the recovery world is filled with. You guys got to listen to me. You got to focus I'm on me. I'm telling I need you. your help. You got you to focus on me. The problem is they are completely preoccupied with saving lives. And so there is a bias against abstinence. Because that's the window during which with people will likely overdose unintentionally. They'll become abstinent. They'll go home. They'll sit there for six months. They'll take their usual dose and they will die. And so That's true. That's I, a fact. I, it is a fact. I know it's a fact. And, and so the non people that don't understand this disease see us literally as murderers. And, and that it has that something has to be done to prevent that. Now I'm all for naltrexone implants and things like that if they want to try that. But then they go, oh, no, oh, no, they'll take too much and they'll override their naltrexone. It's like, yeah, but at least it gives you, affords you a window of safety, for Christ's sake. What, what are they talking about? Because they don't understand the disease. But, 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 but Don, go ahead. She's trying to talk. Okay. Go ahead. Don. Well, no, I was just going to say that when, when I say recovery, I don't, you know, I, I actually don't mean abstinence. I mean, you know, talk to the people for whom have, who have tried, you know, the various modalities out there and see what has worked for them. Well, let, um, let me put it this right. way. You're right. Like me, they're in crisis mode. Let, let so that's, that's not the answer. On, that's just on. a, a no, piece no, no. of it. You guys got to listen to me. Here, here, let me paint it this way. So I come in, a motivated prostate cancer patient, and I get active surveillance, and I have a team of active surveillance people, and we watch it, and then we do a surgeon. I get a certain kind of surgeon because I want that kind of surgery. I have that. That's who fits my treatment needs. Compare these two cases. A homeless, schizophrenic, trauma-surviving, uh, never worked in, their, in his life, no family, no motivation, heroin addict. Compare that case with a 42-year-old physician who's strung out on Vicodin since medical school, who has an active family, is desperate for help, has tried multiple modalities, now really ready to get sober, uh, and has family in Al-Anon, and is very educated on the problem, and he's tried everything. He's tried replacement therapies, and he knows he needs to be abstinent now, and he wants to return to a fully flourishing life, and he'll take six months off to do it if necessary. Are those two different cases that require two different treatments, yes. or should they both get buprenorphine, so both get Suboxone? I, I've had both of those clients, and I've had b- both of them die, and both of them thrive. So there is no rules to this also. You don't uh, know uh, who gets to live and who gets uh, to thrive would, and who doesn't. That, that's an interesting point, and I, and I, I don't disagree with you thir- completely. I am it, the homeless it, it, schizophrenic, right. by the way. You would not <laughs> but, but, the, but the fact is, the, the homeless guy, I, I, okay, we want to use some box on there. I, I'm kind of for that, and let's keep him alive. The motivated physician with the family and everybody else and resources and willing to do it, to deploy a team that really knows how to do that. And by the way, the guy on buprenorphine, let's keep trying to motivate him. Let's, keep, let's, let's see if we can get him to a place where he'd be. You want to know the craziest thing about legislative uh, people you're dictating not allo- drug you're, you're treatment? You're not allowed to make a difference. That's just yeah, in New York City, you yeah. are not allowed. Is that not true? In New York City, the homeless drug addict in Wall Street or the, the, the doctor are supposed to be in the same tr- drug treatment, well, in the same I, program. I don't mind that, actually. I, I, I'm, it's difficult to manage a program like that. But what I have a problem with is— Well, there never we, has been we can't one talk about because them no as, one opens a treatment center in New York because nobody who can pay is going to be in with the homeless population. Th- that's, that's a patient issue, not 
out of clinical. It's been a convenient issues. way that New York City has kept treatment out of New York City. Interesting, <laughs> but but be that as it may, I, I just unless we talk about clinical differences and talk about them realistically as different cases. With, with differing treatment needs that require differently trained professionals, frankly, you, yeah. you were never going to well, get Well, that's what anyone. she's describing. I know. I know that's what she's describing. But I'm how do you it. make it universal care? How do, how how do, do I make a case it? for that? How do I make a case for well, that? Well, I think Christy is saying with the sober coaching. Yeah, but he's going all the way it. that way. See, he's kind of going naively that way where he doesn't understand they've got a big psychiatric population too, right? It, it, help me, Don. Go ahead. Well, I just think that, you know, <laughs> People who are making the policy, who are setting the policy, they, they listen to a lot of different people, and I think they, they kind of the one that that pops out at them is the one that they kind of attach to, right? Yep. So I don't I don't know what Christie's up to. I haven't paid much attention. As I said, I'm up here on the west coast in Canada, and we have our own crisis. Um, so we're just looking at different things, and we you know we actually we're doing a there's a lot of research going on in Canada. There's a lot of tasks. we're doing a lot of innovative stuff up there in Vancouver yeah. and Victoria. Yeah, so we look at like the the uh, lower downtown east side in Vancouver. Lots of work. The work of Dr. Gabor Mate. Have you looked at yeah. his work? Oh, I love uh, him. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we love yeah. him. We love him. You know, like I, I just I think that th- there are answers there, but there's just no there's not one size fits all in any of this. And but, I just think that multi pronged approach is absolutely required. But Don, we haven't even decided what our goal is down here yet. Are we trying to save lives? Are we trying to make people not do drugs? Well, are we, Canada or has a public policy are that we they're trying, trying to save lives. To restore a flourishing a fully flourishing I think life you're for that person. too high. See? That's that's the problem. Isn't it in in Canada, you have you have safe injection sites, correct? In Vancouver, oh yeah, we have them everywhere. So they're trying to. They're, so it's a patchwork. You have you have a very much harm reduction approaches uh, here on the west coast. Yeah, for sure. uh, it, like through through the and, healthcare and, system, right? So if I'm a 19 year old heroin addict and I go to the doctor, they're going to try to put me on harm reduction, right? Yeah. Over abstinence based yeah. treatment. Well, you know, unfortunately, it depends on the physician. What we need to do is train our physicians better to actually recognize and, and know what the options are, right? So we don't do that very well. I don't know if you guys do it any better than we do. But for sure, um, a lot of our... our I'm always hoping funded, Canada's doing better than us because we're I, not doing very good. No. Well, we provide a lot more medical services for... Well, not for free because we do pay. But um, yeah, we. I, you know, I'm really proud of our healthcare system. I got to say that and... I don't know what you guys are doing for healthcare these days. Uh, <laughs> About, the same. There. About the same. Um, it's a patchwork. It's a patchwork. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, it's a it's a patchwork for sure, right? I guess yeah. I, these are big questions. I don't envy you going to New Jersey. I mean, I, I'm excited that you're going to New Jersey because Susan said she and Michelle might come over and see us at our event in New York City, and that's exciting. But oh, that'd be great. I don't envy you having to. Um, Where's it going to be, by the way? I'm sorry. Or is it is it secret, or can you tell us where it's going to be? Oh, my God. I'd love to tell you all about it. It's yeah. at the Conrad Hotel okay. in Lower Manhattan, facing Battery Park. There will wow. be 500 women. We have Marianne Williamson is one of our oh, keynote speakers. Oh, my God. Yeah, we know Marianne. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And Glennon Doyle Melton. She's a, a very famous writer, in the, and she's a recovering bulimic and alcoholic. She wrote a book called Love Warriors just recently. Um, Gabby Bernstein. I don't know if you know Gabby. She's started this movement called the um, Spirit Junkie Movement. And Elizabeth Vargas from 2020. So we have four rocking oh, keynote yeah. speakers, all women in recovery. And then we have other panels that are not, sorry, not panels, interactive sessions around um, 
eating disorders and sex and recovery. Jennifer Matezas is a, a Hazelden author that just wrote a book called Sex and Recovery last year. Um, Ann Dowsett Johnson, who wrote a book called Drink, will be presenting. Oh my gosh, I'm going to, I mean, I could go on forever. There's, there's eight other presenters. Wow. We're going to, my daughter's going to be doing yoga with Elena Brower, one of the most famous yoga teachers in North America. Yeah, it's wow. going to be absolutely awesome. Well, congratulations. Where, where do people wow. go if they want to be a part of it? Or can they? Well, we, we sold out three months in advance and we quickly grew a waiting list of 230 women. So wow. we're live streaming. So if they want to join, uh, purchase a digital ticket and join us from their couch in their pajamas, <laughs> they oh, just cool. go to www.sherecovers.co slash NYC okay, on our website. But I, oh, I okay. still, I'm still looking for some guidance. I'm not feeling better. Do you feel Bloody, like you have to have the answer f- like I have an idea. I have an idea. I have an idea. All right, I'm listening. Call William White, man. Ooh, that's an interesting idea. He he's all abstinence, though, isn't he? I don't know. I don't think so. No, so he's well for whatever helps people. Okay. I mean, I think he's looked at everything. Okay. I, I think you know that's if he idea. doesn't know, if he doesn't know, he knows the guys that know, the girls that know. I think is probably smarter. Hopefully, looking. we'll have a a. Uh, some sort of federal kind of act, task force that they're talking about, Jared Kushner and 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 Christie, and start to have some information start to flow back and forth between the recovery world, treatment professionals, hospitals, and and government, and try to come up with a better solution than what we've got. They're going to go hell bent for replacement. First, I don't think Christie wants that. I know, but I'm telling you. If they start going for the quote evidence, and they're looking at six month horizons and patient reports and un- unobserved urines, of course it wins. Of course, mm-hmm. and so. But the death rate's not going down. So buprenorphine has been on the scene for ten years or more. It's overprescribed. It's and, given in every treatment center, including absence based programs. It's everywhere. And Kids so here, deal it on the street. So here's what and they say: the death rate is skyrocketing. So how is it stopping the right. death so rate let, from let me, skyrocketing? Having having reviewed all that literature yesterday, here's what they will say: is none of those overdoses are buprenorphine. We need more people on buprenorphine, and God knows we need to keep them on buprenorphine because people are coming off of it, and that's the that's the terrible thing. This is what their orientation is. Do you hear that in your practice? Well, not in my practice, but I hear that in my community. Yeah, I don't do. I'm, I'm not doing a lot as a practice. I have oh, okay. a and, consulting business where I mostly do research and writing for government. I'm not. And, and, and to some extent, they're not wrong. It's not that they're wrong. It's that they're overly enthusiastic and they don't know the rest of the landscape. They just don't know it. They've never seen it. They've never seen recovery. Recovery. They don't know what we're talking about, except that we're just some sort of backward dinosaur that's risking people's lives. Well, we'll see, because something's <laughs> got to change. No, the number's going to hit 100,000 by 2020, by 2020. Dead? 100,000 are going to die from opiate overdose death. It's already at 62,000. It's Have you seen the chart oh, that yeah. I showed? Listen, I told it's you this. Was, I told you 15 years ago we would be are you Are you seeing that in Canada? Are you seeing the death oh, rate? Yeah. Skyrocket? No, absolutely. It's Doubling and tripling for sure. It's well, what, what's bothersome to me is that it, it it was it was almost easier to attack when it was the benzo opiate combo that doctors were prescribing because you could just attack the doctors. Now it's heroin. Yeah. Now it's heroin fentanyl. 
yeah. It's the fent. It's the fentanyl here, yeah. right? Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. Well, let's let's. Um, yeah. Well, Don, listen. We're gonna let you go, uh, hey. and I really appreciate you coming on, and we appreciate. We also value the work you're doing, and I will. I would love Thank to you. swing by if I have time on this thing. I certainly want to oh, see the lectures and stuff. Oh my! God. I would love it. The energy there is going to be outstanding. It's going to be amazing, and. Um, we're actually we're looking at she recovers in LA in 2018. Great, okay. well we'll certainly be at that we'll be one. Around if, if, here. Yeah, we'll be at that one, if not this one. Yeah, would love to connect about that. It's going to be awesome too. Great. All right, Don, okay, such a cool. pleasure. Thanks, guys. Are you hey, got it. You. go when you solve those problems in New Jersey. I was <laughs> we're trying. I'm we're giving it a lot of thought. Trust me, a lot of thought. Okay, and if I if I come across anything in the next couple of uh, week in the next week, I'll send it your way. Please. If you could ever find anything about how people find treatment. I, I know that nobody's really doing the evidence about it, but there's got to be some research about how people find, because it used to be your general practitioner referred yeah. you to treatment. Yeah. Now people don't even know who their general practitioner is. Yeah. Or they don't have one. We, you know, there's a shortage, right? So I think you know the answer, Bob. I think it's the internet. It's the internet. Yeah. All right. Okay, All guys. Right, thanks, thanks so much. All right, we're taking a break. Be right back. <laughs> And, of course, we want to thank our friends at Hydrolyte. I love this product. It's an effervescent tablet and some powders. It goes into your water bottle. It's rapid, effective recovery from dehydration. Of course, that requires a proper balance of sodium, glucose, water. It's crucial if you're sick, been vomiting, or even experiencing heavy perspiration from heavy exercise. Water alone does not do it. Sports drinks are far less effective than this well-balanced rehydration solution. Simply, Hydrolyte's formulation is based on established, proven science. It's the best rehydration product I have seen. And it comes in great flavors like orange, berry, lemonade. It's available as a pre-mixed drink, a powder. My personal preference is the effervescent tablets you can simply drop into a glass or a bottle of water. Compared to sports drinks, Hydrolyte delivers up to four times the electrolyte and 75% less sugar. They're appropriate for all ages. Each bottle or package includes easy-to-follow dosing instructions. You can find Hydrolyte at Rite Aid or online at Amazon.com. And for more information, visit Hydrolyte.com. That is Hydrolyte, H-Y-D-R-A-L-Y-T-E, Hydrolyte.com. Okay, so, so yeah, the National Addiction Foundation, we're trying to go back to the basics. Yeah. We're an actual professional, licensed, trained professional, Does takes in your information yeah. and kind of tries to direct you at the best possible, uh, best care for the best possible outcome. Do, how do they know who to send where? How do you know? In other words, let's say somebody is a, pup- a Suboxone patient. Would they send them to you that? know what we're getting a lot because I monitor the phone still yeah. right now. You can call any time. What's uh, the number? You get that. It's eight 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 four nine four nine one eight six. But you can just go online and find right. National Addiction Foundation. But what's happening is people that are on buprenex, buprenorphine, are calling, wanting to know where they can go and get. You gotta love this. Painlessly off of it. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's another thing I got to remember to talk we, about is why are we so preoccupied with the withdrawal? It's the it's easiest so thing. So many people are just, so focused on the withdrawal. It's crazy. Yeah, that's part of the the carrot that buprenorphine is is you won't have to suffer withdrawal. And and see the problem is patients have a pathological fear. Opiate addicts, have, particularly methadone addicts, have a pathological fear of withdrawal. The pay, the doctor's job is to go don't. Let me reassure you, it's not that bad. It'll be over in five days. It'll be just like having the flu. As opposed to, oh, my God. Oh, we can't let you have any discomfort. Of course not. Of course not. Which is what we've done. Yeah. So we add to their pathological fear. Well, and add to the concierge service of, 
typical high-end treatment in America, you don't want your patient to be uncomfortable. I heard another replacement. You want them to be satisfied, I, like a Yelp review. Yeah, oh, that's that. Oh. oh, God. You're right. But I, so there's anyways, another... So people can call, and you're getting properly yeah. assessed, and right. steered as best direction you can. I, I but, saw another electrode guy was going, we have keep people on our Suboxone and Methadone until their families get involved, and the families always want them to come off that medicine. And I go... Why do you think their families want because that? Because they're asleep and they're numb yeah, and they're emotionally numb. Absolutely. They're, they're not, not themselves. They're really alive. That's right. Why None the hell? fucking families. Yes. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Oh, my God. All right, let me take some right. This is from Real doctor. Bi- I wanted Ryan. you to have two real doctor questions right, so you could feel like a doctor. Thank you. My PSA was 0.6. Uh, I tested again a year later nearly. It was 0.9. I'm 55, type 2 diabetic, uh, A1C 8.4, generally good shape. Should I be concerned? Should I wait until the next test to see if that number goes up again and then freak out? You should definitely take another test. Uh, I would not freak out at all. Uh, mine went from a 1 to a 4 when we started kind of looking around. And believe me, I was not freaking out. I thought everybody was overreacting. Turned out should have been a little more nervous about it. You should have been a little more concerned? Yeah. I was. I, when it went from a 1 to a 4? Both normal readings. Oh. That's all normal. The scale? 1 to 4. <laughs> 0 to 4. You know, and uh, and I was like, ah, let's just. Even the urologist, like, yeah, you shouldn't be here. You just probably have prostatitis. We'll treat it. Treated it. Didn't go down. He goes, ah, let's try it again. Treat it. And he's like, well, now you bought a biopsy. I'm like, see, you see, we should have just done it again in a year. So, <laughs> so they were right. Uh, but yes, and re- it was still relax. two years after that, right? I, I am. Yeah, before, yeah, before I did the surgery. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Brian, B R Y O N, Brian. Your A1C is 8.4. That is totally unacceptable. Completely. I am what is really, that what is that measure? That is a measure of his glycemic control, his blood sugar. And that is not bueno. No bueno, man. The fact that you're focused on the PSA and not on your blood sugar is gravely concerning to me. So let's get that down at least under 6.5, preferably under six. All right. That is some doctor shit right there. There we go. And there's so many good oral agents down, all kinds of things you can do to, to manage it. All right. When you ever put doc on it, does that mean I could? Yeah, that's a doc question. Okay. Uh, I've heard you speak several times on podcasts. Not in favor of back surgery, particularly fusion. Can you explain why? why? Yeah, I didn't know that you were not in favor of back surgery. You're in favor of it. No, I'm not in favor of it. Here's why. Uh, and, and you never I, said you weren't in favor well, of it. Well, I, I would. Here's the. Here, let me be. It's, I'm glad we're talking about it. I, I would not single out fusion. It's nothing wrong with fusion if that's what you need. Back surgeries, in my opinion should never be done for pain. Let me understand. Let me underline it again. Back surgeries should never be done for pain. What about up, in the, f- up uh, in the neck? That's not back. That's neck. They go into here. The neck is different. The neck is different. If you get stenosis in your neck, yeah. it could have real meaning. And pain may be how that pain and numbness may be how that presents. But a, a mandate for back surgery is motor or balance problems, like you can't propagate your limb through space. What about numbness? Can, numbness, a little more than pain, but but not as. Because a lot of my friends have had back surgery. Un, un, a lot unnecessarily. Most of the most of the time, the pain will recur or get worse. So why would you do it? If you have a motor problem, yes, you have to have back surgery. Then you got to do it because you got to protect the motor function for sure. It may or may not help the pain, but you do not do back surgery for pain. Period. And if you're on an opiate and going towards back surgery for pain, never without coming off the opiate for six months. It's insane to do that. Because you just keep re-injuring or you don't have a tolerance for pain or why? The opiates are causing the pain. Opiates are causing the pain. 
You don't know that? No, I thought that opiates make mask you from from being able to process pain. No, opioids do three things. One, they put you in chronic withdrawal. What's the biggest complaint we hear from our patients in withdrawal? Body aches. Back pain, leg pain. Body aches. That's chronic withdrawal, number one. Number two, you develop something called hyperalgesia. Pain is intensified. What am I hearing? No, I'm hearing no, my voice tea. back. No, I thought we were hearing... No, I'm hearing... Oh, is it you? Okay. Okay. Uh, better. Start over. It went away. Okay. So hy- <laughs> hyperalgesia is the intensification of pain. When your brain receptors are affected... Yeah, can't... can't can't your pain becomes more intense much more intense i thought you're just so unused to it more intense your pain becomes less tolerable and the more you use the more intense it becomes so what do pain management doctors say to this? don't even get me going number three chronic pain patients are not probably not having a lot of somatic pain anyway there's two pieces to pain there's the somatic piece, the part that hurts, like yeah. when we break our leg. And then there's the affective component of pain, the part, the misery part. And in, in on op- and that's the insula cortex. And I met with Stephen Porges yesterday. It was one of the most exciting meetings I've ever had. He has worked out how the autonomic system does this. And it all gets funneled through a part called the insula cortex. And guess what fires off the chain in chronic pain patients and trauma patients? The insula cortex. The misery index is firing out of control. And opiates make that worse. Okay? So, and this is new evidence? That- no. And let me put a fourth on there. There is zero science, there's not one scientific study that shows that opioids are a good or effective treatment for chronic pain. So if this guy has his surgery, I guarantee you he's going to report feeling better because all of my friends, dozens of my friends have had it. They always report feeling way better. They're on the mend, six weeks, two months, and then a year later they're back in pain. Maximum of six months of relief. Why? Why Because it's not a treatment for pain. But why do they get that relief for six months? Um, placebo? Hard to say. I don't think it would be placebo. It's probably their other pains, like the surgical pain that they're more preoccupied with. And, and by the way, they're on their back and they're not doing things. I mean, pain, back pain is part of being an upright human being over the age of 25. That's just oh, what I thought you said 45. 25. Well, 45, <laughs> you're definitely going to have it. But, but we all have That's it. That's what I got. Yeah, I have terrible back pain. I'm at, Look how I'm sitting trying to deal with it yeah, right now. Yeah, me too. Look yeah. at us both are yeah. sitting... Because we've been sitting a couple hours. And so what? But if your body tells you, oh my God, this is a life-threatening problem, every time you feel a little back pain, you're going to preoccupy, you're going to talk to doctors, you're going to get on pain meds, and then you're going to talk to a surgeon. Yep. And then once you have surgery, well, now you have reasons for surgery because that does screw your back up. You'll have have one surgery, you'll have more. Your friends have more than one surgery? Jeff, Jeff Conaway. Thank you. So this gentleman needs to know about that. It's a slippery road. Finally, I'd like to know your opinions on insomnia. I've struggled with it all my life. I've been prescribed Lunesta. It usually works, but not always. I've also tried Xanax, and it seems to work. What are your opinions on Lunesta, Xanax, and helping beat insomnia in general? These benzodiazepines and hypnotics are a very temporary solution. Like you can use them a few times, and then that's it. 
It's not something. It's not a long-term solution. Lanest is advertised as a permanent solution. Oh my god, that, that's I, I have a different name. Way you watch of, Netflix too much, don't you? There's no commercials, I suppose. Right? I Z- watch. All I watch. <laughs> record a DVR stuff. I move through. Okay, things. so Lanesta is the Lanesta, one with the butterfly. Yeah. Advertisement. Look, if you're traveling to Japan and you want to take that's a benzo, not what they're advertising. I they're said. advertising it to be on for life because no. you can't have insomnia. If you're an old lady with cancer and you know, fine. But if you're a so, is there something called insomnia? Oh yeah. And you know how they treat it? But that's it? called sleep apnea, right? No, sleep apnea is you stop breathing when you're sleeping. Insomnia okay, means what? you can't sleep. You, there yeah, are different but- kinds of insomnia. You have trouble falling asleep. You wake up early. There's different qualities and, and issues around insomnia. Um, but you have to have properly diagnosed insomnia. But do you know I was, I was uh, listening to an expert talk about this the other day, and he said his primary treatment now is sleep deprivation. He makes people not sleep until they sleep, and he said they always do. And then they start to start expanding it, and eventually they get on a, a normal cycle. Or you you find up with you're manic, or you have depression, or you have other things that might be impairing the sleep. Then you try to manage that also. What What does this woman have? She says she has a lifetime of it. Uh, you know, in my opinion, some some people just don't need a lot of sleep. So they call it insomnia, and they just only need four or five hours of sleep at night. Einstein but, only yeah, needed yeah. four or five hours. But but my but he was a womanizer too. <laughs> but my predominant experience of somebody who says that is they That's had trauma. Trauma. That's they had tra- it. And pre- often, I knew it when I read it. And oftentimes, nighttime trauma too. When the kid was in bed, hypervigilant, waiting for the dad to come and do whatever they did to them, or beat the mom, or whatever. That's when they get real bad insomnia. That's wild. Yeah. All right. Uh, the good show. Very interesting. Uh, we didn't get to the addiction questions. We want to do one. Do we have time? Up. We have time for one or we have to break? One more. Okay. Uh, let me keep I going. can do a cheat sheet on it. Just go through. I want Drew to go through the questions, read them all, and tell me what the commonality of all that is. It pretty much has a common yeah. theme. There's a common theme to all the questions you're reading. Here from it is. All the different- this one I thought caught my attention is the one that pretty much okay. illustrates. Read that one then. This is from Mary. My daughter is addicted to heroin and meth. She went to the extreme of being injected in her, in her neck. I've had to put her in jail, trying desperately to get her treatment center. That will be at least 90 days. I'm begging for help from the state. She also has a six-year-old son. There you go. So, so the tr- access to care. There's no... there, uh, and, and also motivation. Had to get people motivated. That's the other thing. Well, the idea is you would need her in inpatient treatment for six months to clear her the math, clear even. her up, yeah. and to get her motivated. Yes, that's right. So, so one thing I always like to tell people: there's three states of being. There's there's denial, there's there's contemplation, mm-hmm. and there's surrender. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. People are mostly... De- denial is a lot of things. It can be impairments and all kinds of stuff. There's lots yeah. of impediments yeah. to insight. Yeah. But family only have influence over denial. They don't have influence over contemplation. That's true. And they don't have influence over surrender. Or, or they, they, they can't move somebody from one yes, to the other. Yes, they want... They expect yeah. that if yeah. they break down the denial, they'll have surrender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You understand? You're right. That's and a it's great not, observation. It, it doesn't work that may way. May I use it on the... Or you, maybe yeah, you could do it in the you, speech. No, yeah. you use it in the speech. Okay, okay. <laughs> That's a great observation. So... But, so, but even we as physicians, we want to believe we can move people from pre-contemplative to, to surrender. Yeah, you call it pre-contemplative. Contemplative. I call it denial. But, yeah. So pre-contemplative, contemplative, and surrender. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah but we want so, to believe we can do it. And, and we sort of feel like we should be able to. But she's saying it in the letter, yeah, too. She's yeah. saying, if I could get my daughter 90 days well, treatment, saying, 
she would be surrendered and yeah. live happily ever after. Well, no, you can only influence their denial. However, I would I would argue if you what we learned from Stephen Adler when he was in here a few weeks ago. That but, was a hard denial. But no one could make me sober, right? <laughs> no one could make me sober. I had to want it myself. But, no, but we were breaking down his denial for years and years that's and years. exactly right. That's what I'm going to say, which is that, that they've shown repeatedly that to get one year of abstinence, it requires about five treatments in eight years. From the start, yeah. you begin thinking about treatment to the time you get that year of sobriety. That's for alcohol. So you can imagine. Oh, opiates. For, oh, yeah. No. So it takes time. It takes what it takes. You had 24 treatments or whatever, yeah, and it took what it took. But everybody was wanting me to go all the time. <laughs> well, that's, by the way, the and, and reviewing all this literature and stuff, the one thing that they did show very clearly is that 12-step works as well as anything else and is free unless the person is mandated to 12-step. Then it actually has the other effect. It makes, it makes them not makes, want to go? Makes them worse. Oh, wow. Worse. Well, I would always go, and I could afford it to No, no, mandated 12-step, not mandated treatment. Uh, Oh, I'm talking about treatment, Yeah, it's different. But I would go because I caught on very early on that everybody thinks I'm working real hard on myself. (laughs) And all I was doing was just romanticizing drugs and smoking cigarettes. Wow. All right, before I go, I want to thank uh, your support, of course. And we hope to be hearing your comments on iTunes. We all look at your five-star ratings. We appreciate those. Please subscribe to this podcast at iTunes. Also, check out what is happening on doctor.com. Again, it's doctor.com slash contact for the emails. We read every single one of them. You can follow us all at me at uh, Dr. Drew, Bob Forrest at Ask Bob Forrest. This is on Twitter. And uh, our, our crack producer, my wife, Susan Pinsky, at, at First Lady of Love. You're, you're a crack producer. You're not on crack. All right, we'll see you Let's next time. Let's see you next time. Yeah, bye. Bye.